0: Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Aslai Adintashbash. Aslai is an analyst and writer and a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. With Turkey's parliamentary and presidential vote coming up on 14th of May, I've asked her in to talk about the election and the possibility that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan may be staring at defeat after two decades in power. Haslai, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Bill, great to be here.
0: Turks go to the polls on the 14th of May, that's this Sunday coming, to elect a president and 600 members of parliament. President uh, Erdogan and his AK party, that's Justice and Development Party, have been in power for the better part of 20 years. In previous elections, he secured comfortable wins, but this time it could be different. His chief rival, Kemal Kilic Darugli, the leader of the uh, CHP, that's the Republican People's Party, is threatening to break Erdogan's hold. What can you tell us about the election and uh, Mr. Kilis
1: Well, uh, this is a very important consequential election for Turkey, I think, and but also for the region, for also many of the countries who are hoping to develop a model where they can challenge illiberal uh, populist leaders who were elected but lurched towards authoritarianism. So the world is watching this election. Of course, Erdogan, as you say, has been in power for over 20 years, almost 21 years. It's going to be in in November. And um, his hold on Turkish politi- Turkish society, his ability to monopolize politics is no longer there. He has to find a way of winning a new alliance, a little bit of maybe repression, eliminate a rival, you know, sort of restrict the communication space, do all of these in order to attain enough to get majority support. That's been the case for the past few years. So in a sense... This election is different because Erdogan is facing what is essentially an anti-Erdogan majority who wants change. The question is, are they all going to go for Kılıçdaroğlu? He's an interesting figure. He's been in Turkish politics for a long time. Um, I actually have known him because I used to be a journalist, have traveled with him, interviewed him many times, have met his family. So he is not a version of Erdogan. He's the opposite of Erdogan. A middle class, quiet man, a former civil servant who is essentially positioning himself as a uniter. And basically what he's saying, Turkish voters, is I am a transition figure. He's not saying that word, but he's positioning himself as sort of a figure that would lead the country towards a new period whereby they can undo the legislative package that has created what is effectively a one-man regime today. So the opposition's big promise is democracy and rule of law and bringing the country back to parliamentary system.
0: An alternative to uh, what has emerged under Erdogan.
1: The system in Turkey today is like a super-presidency system, uber-centralized. president, uber centralized. I can't find enough superlatives to explain the system in the sense that the president decides on every aspect uh, of um, life and governance from the colors that will uh, be on the Bosphorus Bridge to who gets to have what tenders. You know, foreign policy to domestic, from the minutia to big strategic questions. And I think that there are questions in society that this is a good model. Turks barely voted for this model in with 50.5% in 2017. And now they're seeing that actually having a very centralized decision-making system is not a good form of governance on top. It makes you poor so rule of law issues, but also the economy. This is a country that has double-digit inflation. Right now, ostensibly around 45%, I think, but last year, this time it was 85%. Unofficially, it's been triple-digit. You know, food prices is very clear. You go to the supermarket and it's twice what you paid last year. So you know, in the in in the sort of uh, closer to the elections, there's been a massive campaign for handouts and new law that allows you to retire early, various sort of new stipends for pensioners, construction project, all of these rolled out in order to say Turkish economy is not suffering, but it really is, and I think that's one of the other issue. So democracy, uh, uh, Turkey's governance system, and economy.
0: But uh, Mr. Kilic, directly, you say he was a servant. He's pushing this line of, uh, what, a, a restoration towards democracy. Uh, some accounts I've read of him is he's a rather colorless figure. And, and Erdogan, of course, has a, a charisma about him. It, can this colorless figure really I mean- unseat this very powerful uh, president?
1: No one will tell you that Kulich Daru is a charismatic figure. So you've said colorless, I think, and that is an acceptable description. He is a former bureaucrat in in every sense, and he actually manages a, a, a coalition of six different parties. So those are all negatives. But what he has going, perhaps, is um, you know the ability to bring these th- this opposition coalition from different political and ideological backgrounds together. He is saying, "I am Turkey's Joe Biden, older, perhaps the same age as Biden when he when he ran, not the most uh, central figure in politics." He, in fact, he hasn't won an election against Erdogan, and he's been around since 2010 at the hel- leading his party, the secularists. But I think he, I think that their calculus is that there is such a strong desire for change, and the economy is so bad that even if they the opposition puts forth its least charismatic, its most risky candidate, it can win. Of course, this is a huge gambit. We know that the mayor of Istanbul and the mayor of Ankara hold much higher than Kılıçdaroğlu. But for a whole host of reasons, he ended up being the candidate.
0: And you've touched on (laughs) the economy. Is this election ultimately really about the economy? Because Erdogan has pursued some well, idiosyncratic is one way to describe his economic policies, but is it that rampant inflation rate, the high unemployment, is that what is going to drive people away from him and towards Kılıçdaroğlu?
1: It's one of the reasons, but President Erdogan, don't forget that he's a great campaigner. You know, he is good on campaign trail and also good in crafting messages. So to counter the opposition's message, that this system of governance has failed Turkish citizens, is is the result of their poverty, essentially. He is pointing out the fragmented nature of the opposition as a huge risk, a bigger risk for the Turkish economy than the current situation. So he says, how can the opposition rule with six parties in the government? Externally, he claims, supported by the terrorists, he says. So he basically says this is a joke of a coalition. They'll never be able to rule. You are better off under my rule than you would be under Kılıçdaroğlu. So the fight is about the economy in many levels. It's just differences in terms of the governance model. Erdogan very clearly is positioning his own centralized rule as the better bet for people's bottom line.
0: Against what could prove to be an unwieldy coalition. I wanted to ask you, Asli, about the earthquakes and and Erdogan's handling of uh, those enormous tragedies. There has been a lot of criticism directed at him, at his government. Is it going to cost him votes in conservative bastions that would previously have been just behind him, and he could have pretty much taken for granted?
1: I'm not sure the earthquake will be a, a turning point itself. I think it was, you know, a tragedy that at least for a couple of days, people were united in tra- in grief and then went on their separate ways. The country continues to be deeply polarized. The, um, the opposition's or the government's response to the earthquake has only consolidated their own base. So yes, there are people who cannot vote in those areas, and they are a mix, right? they were both opposition supporters and conservatives. But I think that it has made people, after the first couple of weeks, where there was quite strong feelings, the government started rolling out stipends and and various uh, sort of construction projects and to an extent consolidated his base, particularly in areas outside of the earthquake zone. The people living in the earthquake zone, many of them won't get a chance to vote. They have moved. Some have re-registered in other provinces, but many (laughs) haven't. So they're not the issue. The issue is what message do you have to people that are outside of this area, to people who are going to be voting in Ankara, in Istanbul, and watching this earthquake. And I think there, um, both sides have been successful in, in, in messaging to their base that the other side is to blame. And these natural disasters work in both ways. They do create an anger, but then often also give an opportunity to central governments to showcase their ability to take care of people by rolling out various sort of programs and and aid and all of that. And that's what Turkish government has done over the past month.
0: You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Aden Tashbash, a writer and senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org Now, the last time uh, I had you on the podcast, we, we talked about the extent to which Erdogan has made serious attempts to mend fences with, well, primarily the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and, you know, it's paid off in as much as the Saudis, for example, in March bailed out the central bank to the tune of $5 billion. How closely, then, do you think the Gulf states, the Saudis the Emiratis in particular, are watching the election? And and a supplemental question, how troubled would they be if Erdogan loses?
1: I think every country in the region is watching this election. Yes, Saudis have banked on Erdogan in a way. United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia have been supporting him financially, in something like the vicinity of 5 to 10 billion each. Uh, But I think that the new government essentially calls for normalization of relations with Turkey's regions. They've long been criticizing the government for isolating uh, regional players including the Gulf countries and Israel. So in essence, the whole idea of normalization with the region was something CHP and Kalij Darulu has been harping on for many years. Um, And the government finally came around to it, but I don't think that the opposition winning the elections would negatively impact that process. Quite the opposite, perhaps there has been messaging from kulich daroğlu about the need not to interfere in the domestic politics of middle east countries and he has also been talking about normalization of relations with with syria so some of these issues may actually uh, appeal to gulf countries
0: yeah, you touched upon this uh, a little bit this is the the crackdown under Erdogan on the other one on freedom of speech on the media including the arrest of journalists. And I'm just wondering how effectively the opposition voice is getting out and the extent to which Erdogan's control of the media is influencing the election.
1: Erdogan does control mainstream media and television networks and, uh, and the airwaves in terms of um, the sort of the networks that are out there in, that can beam into everyone's home. Among these is, of course, TRT, Turkey's official broadcaster, which can be watched across the country in every small town and village. Now, the opposition has independent media outlets, even televisions, not that are on cable or on satellite. And some, when well, there, do you you do have a, a, an ecosystem, a, a media uh, landscape, opposition media landscape, but it's not just on a, in terms of the technological um, ability to reach every household, they don't have it. Uh, much like the situation in, in in Russia, let's say, before the war started. Of course, the situation in Russia is very different now since the uh, war in Ukraine, they have shut down whatever was left of uh, free media. But uh, to get back to the opposition, Turkey is of course a, a very authoritarian landscape Uh, But there is still an opposition ecosystem, particularly on social media, where I would say um, the opposition almost has uh, the upper hand. Erdogan has done better last few weeks in terms of consolidating his own base. He still seems to be short of 50%, but he took it from something like 39% 39% support to right now, 45 So that's not really bad, given uh, the fact that Turkey is going through very dire economic situation. I think that the reality is, you know, because Turkey's an elective, competitive authoritarian uh, regime, there is also a voice for oppositional parties and networks. It's not this the the the at the level of freedom that you know, a democratic country would have, but it's far more than anything we see elsewhere in in many Middle Eastern countries that don't even claim to have competitive politics in the on this level. so it's it's an interesting example, Turkey.
0: Mm, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens if the one wins again and whether that illiberal trend, Uh, continues and impacts even more on on people's uh, abilities to to criticize.
1: Can I add one more important element to this story about uh, the question about uh, free speech and limits on free speech you raised? uh, Because I feel it would be injustice to Kurdish journalists and politicians if we don't mention their situation as a special case. I think they're treated... They have to live in a harsher climate than the rest of Turkey. Just two weeks ago, 128 lawyers and uh, journalists in Diyarbakir were detained, including uh, election monitors, observers from the pro-Kurdish party. They, of course, have to live in conditions that are more difficult than their Colleagues in Istanbul who may be working for even for working for oppositional outlets, and I think that in, when it comes to Kurdish politicians, it's the same. You can be from the main opposition party, the secular opposition party, and and uh, get on stage in the on the on the podium in Turkish Parliament and sort of really uh, speak uh, uh, against the government and and. Uh, Blast them with all types of uh, criticism and accusations and so on, but Kurdish politicians and elected mayors and elected deputies have to live with the fact that they're all under indictment and many arrested, detained, removed from position. So it's almost two different systems of authoritarianism.
0: Mm, that's that's interesting because my next question really is about the Kurds, and, and both in Syria and Iraq, they have been military targets under Erdogan. Do you think there will be a shift there if uh, Kilicdaroglu wins?
1: I think the shift will be in domestic Turkish politics initially. That is to say, a better climate, a rule of law, and Kilicdaroglu is promised to... Um, stop this government practice of removing elected Kurdish mayors. That's a huge issue for Turkey's Kurds, 18% of the population. And secondly, he's also promised to that there would be uh, that Turkey would observe European Court of Human Rights decision, therefore release imprisoned Kurdish politician Selahattin Demirtas, the leading voice. That, of course, means other Kurdish politicians could also be released. In other words, don't expect foreign policy to be under in Iraq, Syria to be the first order of business. I think this election is about what's happening in Turkey, and there we're likely to see an immediate improvement in terms of um, just people being freed from jail. Mm.
0: One of the extreme right politicians has threatened uh, kilic Dogli with death. Uh, has that to do with uh, his stand on the Kurds? I mean, he's been accused of being a traitor uh, by this uh, by this chap
1: so he's been accused of being a traitor, being uh, in a coal in a secret coalition with uh, PKK. President Erdogan has even released this deep, fake video, which shows as if, PKK leaders and commanders are are clapping for Tarolo's song, like you know, it's it's an it's a very consistent propaganda that that if the opposition coalition wins, it'll be because of the support of PKK. And honestly, at this point, I don't even know if that changes anybody's view or any if anyone believes it. In part because the government has. Basically, had this propaganda for much of the past ten years. I remember at some point during local elections, one of Erdogan's ministers was saying, "If we lose Ankara, your gas bills will be uh, delivered to your home by PKK uh, militants." I mean, and and you know, and the government lost Ankara despite uh, that fiery rhetoric. Mm. So I guess my point is. There's only so much propaganda can do. However, it has helped consolidate Erdogan's base, no doubt about it. Mm. Maybe, I, maybe I should point out that it's not so much terrorism association, but more this deep, hidden sectarian uh, prejudice that hurts Kılıçdaroğlu at this point.
0: Mm. Can I come back to foreign policy a little a little bit? Uh, under a new president, Kalista would there be a different relationship with the Russians, with the Americans, for example? Or or do you see it pretty much steady as she goes?
1: So let's go one by one. Well, in fact, it is related. How you approach Russians inevitably defines how we approach the United States the country is rabidly anti-american after daily uh, discourse that the united states is trying to split turkey support terrorism against turkey as, as every intention of trying to prevent its its rise is doing encirclements etc no party is coming out and saying we are transatlanticists. that is just not a viable position in Turkey, not a viable public position in Turkey. But the opposition says they want better relations with the West, repair Turkey's broken ties with Europe and U.S., though they acknowledge uh, when you talk to them that, you know, Russia now has so much leverage over Turkey that the next government would also have to have a balancing act between Turkey Turkey. And Russia, and that because of Russian control in the Black Sea and to Turkey on Turkey's southern flank in Syria, and because of the their basically leverage over Turkish economy, whether it's energy or their investments or uh, the fact that they've loaned so much money to President Erdogan, uh, they they cannot afford to have and an antagonistic relationship with Russia. And I think there's no doubt that Russians are supporting President Erdogan and they're doing their best to help him economically and according to many experts I have spoken to in terms of the uh, you know social media campaign and all but you know they also know that the next government if there is to be a post Erdogan government would also try to strike A good relationship with Russia. Now, where I think we would see a difference is a tilt towards Europe and a better tone in relations with the United States. Opposition parties have all said and and put this in writing that their goal is to try to improve ties with the EU and see if they can resuscitate the accession process. They want also to you know, try to upgrade uh, Turkey's free trade agreement with Europe, which is called Customs Union. And, you know, they believe that by way of bringing back rule of law as uh, the center focus of Turkish politics, they will automatically have a new tone in relations with the West. You know, I don't know if Turkey would have Fundamentally different positions when it comes to thorny issues like S 400s, Aegean disputes, you know, East Med issues, Turkey's position in uh, some of these other external theaters. But I think that a new tone and desire to have uh, better relations and a Turkey that returns to rule of law would automatically create a better climate you know, more visits, more conversation on economy, a sense that Turkey is back, trying to reclaim its place in the West and all of that. Don't forget that Turkey right now is pretty isolated. This is a country that's used to having interaction with, with the West. Its economy is fully, you know, largely integrated to European economy, but there's nobody coming, nobody going. It's Erdogan never meets with... European leaders and isn't invited to summits, doesn't, Turkey is not part of the conversation anymore. It isn't the topic of conversation sometimes in a negative way, but it's not in the mix anymore. And I think that it has a better chance of getting there with an opposition that commits to democracy.
0: All right, then the final question, the final question, Ashley, what is your call on the election? Does Erdogan win again? Or are we going to see the changing of the guard?
1: Look, I think it's too close to call for me. Most polls show that this will go to a second round, which worries me because, you know, people worry that we would see violence like we have the other day when people stoned the mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem İmamoğlu, and his campaign bus when uh, at, at a rally when he was in Erzurum. There's been a lynching attempt on, attempt on Kılıçdaroğlu. Actually, they tried to burn the the house he was in a, a, a, a few years ago. So there are serious ethnic and sectarian tensions in the country. No one can tell you that Turkish society is above all of this. People worry a lot about a second run, a runoff, which would take place two weeks after May 14 if no one gets to gets to 50-plus percent, 51 percent in the elections. But in terms of what I think will happen, and I am giving you an honest answer, Bill, not a diplomatic one. For me, it's too close to call. I see that Turkish society wants change. I'm confident of that. I just don't know if they'll give that mandate to Kılıçdaroğlu. And I am also not oblivious to the fact that... uh, so the is not running against a government; he's running against a regime, which is, and I'm not. I'm unsure in terms of how they would re- respond to this huge challenge. This is not to say things could never change in Turkey and that elections are are staged in Turkey, because that's not true. There is, there has been instances of this government losing, and there has been instances of very strong. Uh, governments in the past losing. In 1908, Turkey had to, uh, Turkey switched to parliamentary monarchy. 1911, young Turks won an election, despite the fact that the strong caliph slash sultan of the day, Abdul Hamid, was against them. So, I mean, if you could vote out a caliph, you certainly could vote out a an elected leader. But these were all, all of these were very dramatic events that rocked uh, politics and Turkish society had a violent uh, prelude and aftermath.
0: Yeah, is there is there a possibility, as of a, a January 6th scenario where Dilşehir daraglu wins, but uh, Erdogan mounts uh, some sort of a, a coup against that?
1: uh sure i mean if if it's a close race all bets are off and it is a toss up because of that uh, if it's a close race i you know donald trump has tried to do it bolsonaro uh, attempted it why not president erdoğan i think in a close race i highly doubt president erdoğan's reaction would be different from these other leaders Um, So the opposition can only win if they win with a big lead.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a very interesting and and rather frightening scenario. We will watch that space in Turkey very closely. And as you say, it's it's a runoff situation uh, for the president. So big, big things at stake. And you began by making the point that the world is watching this election. Uh, We're seeing a, a strong surge towards authoritarianism this is an important election, not just for Turkey, but for, for the world. So I thank you. I thank you for drawing our attention to it, explaining it. And uh, and we will see. We await the outcome. Asla.
1: Thank you, Bill. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here on your podcast. And uh, let's see what will happen on Sunday.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Turkish writer and analyst, since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Astley. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we've moved the podcast to midweek, and we'll be putting it out on Wednesdays from now on. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.